Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 122 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be speaking with Patrick Rothfuss, author of the epic fantasy trilogy The King Killer Chronicle. The first two books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, are out now. His latest book, The Slow Regard of Silent Things, is a novella set in the same world. So, Pat, welcome to the show. Hey there. All right, and so your new book is called The Slow Regard of Silent Things. And in the very first line of the author's introduction, you say, quote, you might not want to buy this book. <laughs> so uh, why do you say that? Well, uh, a lot of people that have read the first two books are eagerly awaiting the third book. And, you know, they make no bones about that online. Uh, you know, people are very eager for it. They're impatient for it. They're insistent upon getting it. Um, and, and this is not the third book. I, I really wanted to make that clear to people. Um, because if you pick this book up thinking it's going to be the third, it's not. And so they're bound to be disappointed. And I, I don't like disappointing people. The other thing is, if you've never read any of my books, this would be a really odd place to start. And so what I talk about in that author's foreword is, you know, if you've heard of me and you're curious about my work and you look at this book and you go, oh, that looks kind of bite-sized and fun and maybe I'd give it a try. I'm just really encouraging people that that would not be the best place to start. It's like coming in halfway through a movie. You know, if it's a decent movie, you're going to be baffled about what's going on. Um, and so I want to avoid that at all, if at all possible. Right. But it seems like you were also saying that even for people who do know your work, that this is sort of a, a weird story that doesn't do what some of the things you might expect a story to do. Oh, absolutely. And that, that was the, the third thing that I wanted to make really clear to people is, you know, I, earlier this year, I came out with a little slice of uh, Bass Life, another one of my characters. And that's a little bit more of a traditional story. It's got a little more action. It's, you know, one of the characters is in there being charming and, uh, and you know, he's a bit of a, a rake and a bit of a con man. And, and it's it's a very traditional story, and it's it's a lot of fun, but this one is different. This one is strange, and it's kind of weird. And so if people walk into it thinking, you know, oh, this will be, you know, kind of a, a classic fantasy story, you know, with a little adventure and, you know, some drama and some action, and then, again, if they come in expecting that, that's not necessarily what they're going to get. And when we don't get what we expect, we tend to be disappointed and, and irritated. And I, I just wanted to be really upfront with people to let them know, you know, what they might be getting. Well, like, for example, in your, your author's afterward, you say that people are going to read this and be pissed. Um, has that been the case with people you've shown it to? And have people uh, had that sort of uh, hostile reaction to it? <laughs> They haven't actually, and it could be that I'm just being fidgety, you know, that I'm being kind of anxious. It's something that a lot of authors go through when you finish the book and it's out of your hands and you have nothing to do but wait 
for it to hit the shelves and to see what people think. Um, I tend to have a very extensive beta reader process. I give my books and my stories to a lot of people and I gather a lot of feedback so that I can refine and revise, you know, with my books, I, I did it hundreds of times for each book. For this one, I didn't have quite the, that amount of time. So it was only probably with about 40 or 50 beta readers. And, you know, and, and it didn't, it's like nobody got back to me and was pissed. Um, but, you know, then again, I, you know, I, I, I kind of anticipate, I, I guess I fear the worst, you know, is, is, is what I'm saying. If, uh, you know, if only 5% of my readers end up, you know, reading this and, and hating it, that's still kind of a lot of readers. I've got, you know, upwards to half a million here in the U.S. alone. And pissing off 5% of those is kind of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and speaking of, uh, of pissing people off, you also say in the introduction that your, your editor and marketing people are going to hate you for telling people not to buy this book. Uh, did they have any... <laughs> What did they, how did they react to that author's introduction? There was a little bit of raised eyebrow there. And it's, it's really to their credit that they let me put that in, like right up in the front of the book. And then I just asked them if it would be okay if I shared it on Goodreads too. I'm one of the top reviewers on Goodreads. And so I posted that uh, author's forward up as my review of my own book. And I said, is it okay if I share this? And they, they were okay with that too. They, um, you know, I'm not saying it's an awful book. I wouldn't publish an awful book. But I do really want to let people know that this is a different kind of story. It's a different kind of story than what I typically write. It's from a different point of view than you might have gotten used to. And the actual mechanics of the story are different because Ari is a strange character and her situation that she's in, you know, leads to a certain type of story. I hate to vague that up for you, but I really prefer not to share details of the story because you only get one chance to read a book for the first time. I don't want to spoil it for anyone. I mean, you say you say you revised this 80 times or something. Um, could you say a little bit about what is your revision process? Are you adding stuff? Are you cutting stuff? Are you changing words around? What What is the process there? It's something that I do, I, I can probably say with a fair amount of confidence that I revise more than anyone else in the genre, if not, you know, maybe more than anyone who is, who is published today. That seems like a bold statement, but I've asked around and a lot of authors do like four drafts. You know, they write one and then they rewrite it and then they show it to someone and then they revise it and then they show it to their editor and then they revise it and then they copy edit it and then, and then it gets printed. Whereas I, I like to show it to 30 or 40 people and make changes based on their feedback before I ever show it to the editor. And then when I get the feedback from the editor, I change those things and I'll show it to another 30 or 40 people. Um, you know, it's, it's a very labor-intensive process. It takes a long time, especially when you write big books like I do. But it, it helps me be aware of what parts might be confusing or, 
you know, or a little slow or a little distasteful or a little, a little rough for a vast variety of people. Um, you're so close to a book as an author, it's easy to forget what it's like reading a book for the first time. And so that's, that's why I do that process. As for what I change, um, you know, a lot of people say, God, Rafis, why does it take you so long to revise this book? And I, I kind of imagine them thinking of me running spell check on it again and again, <laughs> and again you know, which, which is true. You know, I do have to run spell check. And when you write a book that's a quarter million words long, like spell check takes like eight hours. I will spend like an entire work day just spell checking the document because um, it's just so big. But that's nothing compared to what I actually do. I go through, I reread it, I smooth out rough bits, I tweak phrases, I pull out things that aren't pulling their weight. You know, I pull out phrases or sentences or paragraphs. I move things around to adjust the pacing. I've pulled out whole chapters. I've inserted chapters. I insert characters, change description. You know, sometimes I just massage the language so that it's so that it's beautiful. Sometimes it gets too beautiful and that can be distracting. So then I have to kind of tone that down a little bit. Um, It would take me an hour to tell you everything that I do in revision. I think I actually posted a blog once where as a joke, somebody wrote in a fan mail saying, I'm not really impatient, but I'm really curious. You've been revising this book for years. Um, what does that involve? And so what I did is I actually, and it was, that's pretty much what their letter said, but they said it in about 400 words. And it was a very nice fan letter. But what I did is then I revised their fan letter like <laughs> two or three times. And I say, like, here's, here's how I do that. Um, and at the end, it was a much shorter, tighter, snappier fan letter with like better paragraphing and better phrases and stuff like that. Um, in another blog, once I showed, like, I think I wrote about 800 words about how to punctuate a particular sentence, about what the different types of punctuation could potentially imply to the reader. Am I obsessive? Yes, I am absolutely obsessive. I, it's entirely possible that I am not a well person. <laughs> uh, I'm fully willing to admit that. Well, I mean, speaking of, you'd mentioned making the prose beautiful, and we did have a listener, uh, Gerard Hines, wanted to be, wanted, he says, please ask him about his prose style. It's like dark chocolate. Uh, <laughs> do, 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 do you have any idea what he means by that? Um, it's flattering, you know, no matter what he might particularly mean. Well, I, I hope that he likes dark chocolate. That's <laughs> the first thing I should say. Um, you know, I love, I've read fantasy my whole life. And like, I quite literally, I, I, my mom read me The Hobbit when I was, you know, before I could read stuff to myself. And so I love fantasy. That's that's what I read for fun. It's what I read professionally to keep abreast of what's in the genre. It's it's where my heart is. Now, but that said, that doesn't mean that I can't be critical of the genre. And the truth is, 
you know, we do things better than any other genre. Some things we excel in. We play the what if game better than anyone else. You know, we can have fantastical things. We engage the imagination. We force people to speculate and consider impossibilities. And that's wonderful. But that said, as a rule, because we have the ability to have fantastic plots and armies clashing and magic and dragons, it's easy to leave out other things. And one of the hardest ones to do is language, like attention to the language. And I'm not talking about being florid or, you know, being lyrical or or whatever. I'm talking about just good attention to the brick and mortar of any story, which is how the words are fit together. Um, You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, you know, a, a dactylic, you know, verse. It doesn't have to rhyme or be cadenced, but some words simply sound beautiful together. Um, and some authors love doing that and love playing with it, and some authors don't. And in fantasy, in fantasy, a lot of authors, that's just not the game they care to play. Um, and so I think a lot of my, my readers some of them know it. Some of them read the language and they're like, this is beautiful language. But I think others of them, they read the book and they like it, but they don't know why. And so they say, oh, I really like this character. But what they really like is the cleverness of how that character speaks or maybe the phraseology of how I've described that character. Um, yeah, I, I, I can only guess at what he meant by dark chocolate, but um but I'm, I'm hoping that he meant that it was, it was a bit of a luxury. You know, it's, uh, it was something kind of delicious to him, something, something that he doesn't get every day. Well, yeah, I mean, if I were to describe your prose style in, in uh, The Slow Regard of Silent Things and in The Lightning Tree, I would describe it as playful. It just seems like there's a lot of um, the paragraphs are just filled with words that it just seems like were put in for fun because they're just fun words to have in this paragraph. Yeah. and. Um... You know, anyone who's read uh, the previous two books um, and who knows Ari knows that she is a playful character. She's very playful. And so, of course, a book told a story, you know, from her perspective has to have that same element of play in it. You know, has to have that same, uh, that same sort of delightful language in it. That took a lot of work. Uh, writing a little bit of dialogue from Ari in the book takes a while because she has this wonderful method of expressing herself. An entire book from her point of view, I had to maintain that much longer than I ever have in the novels. And uh, it taught me a few things. I learned, I learned a lot about the language and about her character writing this story. You actually say in the introduction that um, without Tunnel Bob, there would be no Ari. Uh, I was just kind of curious uh, what the story is behind that and, and why is Tunnel Bob called Tunnel Bob? Well, that's, that is a bit of a story. Generally speaking, when people ask me, because I do writing workshops, I go to conventions, I talk to aspiring authors, 
and a question that comes up is, you know, do you base characters on real world people? And what I, you know, and I say, no, I don't. And you shouldn't either because it's almost always a bad idea. Uh, and there's a bunch of reasons for that that I won't bother going into unless you're really curious. But the truth is, uh, the, the true answer is a little more complex, where I don't just try to take a person out of our world and put them in my world. That wouldn't work. It rubs the reader the wrong way. For the most part, it's sort of like bad Photoshop. If you see something Photoshopped together, and even if it's done pretty well, the eye catches on it. And you might not think to yourself, oh, the light sourcing is wrong there. But you look at it and you're like, no, no, that's fake. And that happens a lot when people try to like cut and paste people from our world into their like 14th century historical romance novel. It just, it just runs wrong. But sometimes I will get an idea for a character from something in the real world. And that you know, Ari started um, from stories my father would tell me about a guy that he knew called Tunnel Bob. He's, you know, he lives in Madison, Wisconsin, and he's just a little different from the rest of us. And he is constantly getting arrested from being in the steam tunnels underneath the university, you know, the, the access tunnels that every big city has. My dad used to run engineering for one of the hospitals down there, and so you had to learn how to deal with Tunnel Bob like everyone in the city because he gets into your tunnels. What do you do? And so my dad actually solved the problem by saying, you know, Tunnel Bob can volunteer here three hours a week, but the rest of the time he can't be in. And it worked like a charm. Suddenly, they didn't have to worry about him wandering around when he wasn't allowed because he would do anything to you know, to protect these three precious hours where he was officially sanctioned to be in their tunnels. Um, and at the end of his shift, my dad would buy him a Coke and then they'd talk for a little while. And he would tell me these little stories about Tunnel Bob. And, you know, he was this kind of ponderous, thoughtful guy who loved these tunnels. And he says, you know, so what do you what do you do down there in the tunnels, Bob? My dad would ask. And he'd say, well, first hour, I walks around a bit. And the second hour, I cleans up some. And the third hour, well, that's just for me. You know, he'd, he'd tell me these stories about this guy, and I'd love hearing them. And I'd think, I think that's that's just so neat that this person is is there, you know, and I and so you know Ari is not Tunnel Bob, but I started thinking about what you know this this love of the tunnels. What if I started with the the love of the tunnels, this delight, and that was the seed that char- that uh, Ari as a character grew up around. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that Tunnel Bob isn't like the rest of us, and, and Ari is sort of the same way, too. Could you just talk a little bit about portraying that character and, and just making her a little bit different? Yeah, I mean, when, whenever you write a character, you want to make them themselves. You want to make them unique. You don't want, you know, 50 characters in your book, and they're all, they all pretty much act and think the same, except they have different color hair. 
But Ari is like, is really different. You know, anybody who's read the books knows that. And she's kind of childlike and she's kind of strange. And, but, you know, by no measure would you say she's normal. And by most measures, you would probably say that she has some real problems. I mean, you don't kind of abandon society and live underground and you're afraid of noises and questions and people to the point where you cannot interact with human society anymore. That's, that's somebody who is, is very different. That's somebody who is running different software than the rest of us. And that was an incredible challenge, learning to write from that perspective. Um, originally, when I sat down to write this story, I thought to myself, this will be fun. This will be kind of like a trickster tale. You know, Ari is so playful. Ari is so sweet. And then I started writing the story and I started getting into her head more and more. And I realized, no, no, it's not, it's not just a trickster tale. This isn't just for fun. You know, Ari is sweet and she's childlike and she's lovely. And, but you know, there's, there's a lot more going on there. And that's really what the story is about. You know, the story is about who Ari is and what she's like. Um, that sounds really awful. That sounds like a boring story. I don't know if I'd read that, but, <laughs> but that's the truth. This is the people that are curious about Ari and about this piece of my world. That's who this story is for. You know, if you really, if you really, you just want more about Kvothe and, and his story, uh, you can wait for book three. You know, I'm, I'm working on that. We'll get it done. But this is something else. This is something extra that you can read if you're interested to tide you over. Um, and then another aspect of the story is that I think that this is the first place that you name this world um, yes. that's been published, right? Could you talk about coming up with that name and including it in this story? Well, I've kind of had it rolling around in my head for a while, but I wasn't sure about it. I mean, if you think of your favorite fantasy worlds, they did usually have a name. I mean, people don't talk about Tolkien's world. They talk about Middle Earth, you know? They don't talk about, you know, Lewis's books, you know? Uh, they talk about Narnia. We talk about Pern. We talk about Arrakis, you know, from Dune. Um, and for a long time, I, I referred to the world as, as the four corners, but I've always known that it's not really the four corners. That's just the piece of the world that these, this particular story, Quoth's story is taking place in. And that's how people in the world refer to it as the four corners of civilization. But, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that do doesn't show up on that map. And, uh, you know, the people who aren't on that map probably wouldn't say, oh, yeah, over there is the four corners of civilization. We're all a bunch of bumpkins and hicks over here. Yep, just barbarians. Move along. Um, so, but the thing is, naming a world, it's a tricky thing. And so I didn't want to rush out there and make a wrong choice. So I've been holding on to the world's name for a couple of years now, just sort of smoothing it around in my head and making sure that I genuinely liked the feel of it. Um, and then I, I actually launched it a little bit earlier 
in relationship to a fundraiser that I run. Uh, I raise money for Heifer International with a charity called World Builders. And I said, you know, if we hit $100,000 for our mid-season fundraiser, I'll announce the the name of, of my world. And we hit 200000 and so hmm. I, I let everyone know that, yep, it's, uh, it's Temerant. And this is the first book where it shows up, where, you know, Ari refers to it as Temerant to herself. Um, and you had another Temerant story that came out recently called The Lightning Tree. Um, yeah. and you, were you were talking about trying to do stories that weren't typical fantasy. And this is a story you wrote for the Rogues Anthology. And this is definitely not a typical rogue story. Could you, could you talk about the atypical roguishness of the story? <laughs> well, that's nice to hear. Um, you know, I, I, for that one, I did not specifically sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write an atypical rogue story. But I'm coming to realize that it might be simply impossible for me to just kind of write anything like I'm supposed to. Um, you know, I've known Bast as a character for you know, upwards to 20 years now, but we always see him in conjunction with Close. He's sort of his conversational foil. He's his assistant. He's, you know, he's there in the inn with Close. And uh, you never see him off by himself, with, with very rare exception. And so I figured, let's follow him around. Let's see what he really does in his free time. And, and it turned out really nice. I, 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 was, I was very proud of how that one turned out, especially because I wrote it amazingly quickly for me. Um, it took a long time to get to where I, I, I could start writing it. But once I wrote it, I, the whole thing was pretty much done in two weeks. Um, I wish I always wrote that fast and the stories came together that well. And I saw in your blog that you didn't plan it out in advance. It just sort of grew organically. Yeah, that is how my stuff typically goes. Um, I've heard somebody say that some writers are architects and some are gardeners. And I'm absolutely a gardener. Um, I kind of, I know the characters, I know the world. And then the story moves forward and sort of sort of flowers up. Now, that's not to say that I don't have a plan. It's mostly to say that I don't chain myself to my plans and my expectations. I like to leave myself open for, for beautiful accidents, uh, for strange things to happen, and then I want to pursue those. And that can be hard if you've shackled yourself to an outline. I mean, what was your starting point for the story, sort of the kernel that the rest of it grew from? For the lightning tree, um, I remember thinking, well, I need to write a rogue story. And I'm like, let's talk about Bast. Because he's obviously like one of the most classically roguish characters. And I think, you know, well, what does, what does he do on his day off? How does he fill his time? Because, you know, he's a clever, you know, active you know, interesting person, and it would be real easy for him to go nuts with like all this time on his hands in this tiny little town. You know, how would he amuse himself? Um, and so, you know, that's that's where I started, and I started knowing the character, and I started knowing the town, 
And then I think, who, who would this person interact with? Who would judge him the least? Who would he have the most fun with? And the answer is the kids. Of course, he's going to interact with the kids. Um, and, you know, because he is who he is, you know, the, uh, the older daughters and the younger wives of the villagers are very interested in Bast as well. He's charming and attractive and, you know, somewhat amoral, one could <laughs> say. Not immoral, but kind of without traditional societal morals. And, you know, uh, and that makes for a pretty interesting sort of rogue, um, kind of following through a day and seeing what he does. Um, I, had a, I had a lot of fun writing that. I mean, this, he has all these sort of rules and rituals. Was that, was that inspired by anything in real life or in other stories you've read or anything? No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I, while I, I won't say that I, I never steal anything out of other books, um, I, I, try, I try not to, you know, steal with both hands. Hmm. Um, uh, or be inspired by, <laughs> if you want to phrase it that way, with both hands. Um, that said, you know, in some ways we, um, I mean, it, and it's not, it, it's not any surprise. Anyone who's read my books, you know, with any degree of closeness knows that Bast is like a fey creature. You know, he is, he is not, you know, a normal human creature. Um, now he's very close and he looks like us, but, um, you know, that's, that's not a huge spoiler. Anyone who's listening to this podcast will already know that. And so one of the things that I knew was going to be fun is kind of showing how he actually lives his life. And traditionally, mythically, legendarily, all of fairy or all of fey creatures, they tend to be bounden by rules. Um, I mean, and the truth is we all are, you know, humans are, we, it's just that the really deep superstitions and rules, you know, are not things that we talk about. Um, they're things that are, are so given that we would never think of transgressing against them. For example, you would never walk over next door to your neighbor's house and just let yourself in by the front door without knocking. You know, I mean, you might, but you would kind of be a sociopath um, to just wander into a, a stranger's house. We knock, we knock. And the thought of not knocking, you know, it's really weird. Um, and so that's one of the rules of our culture that's really ground into us. Um, now the fairies always seem to take this to another level. There's debt and there's obligation, you know, in some of the legends, they can't lie in some of the legends. They lie all the time. They're terribly slippery, you know? Um, and so I took this story as an opportunity to kind of show some of the mythos in my world to the reader to kind of un, unveil part of of who Bast is by by showing him moving through some of his own rituals, some of which 
are his and some of which he's kind of created with these children. Um, that was one of the, the most fun parts of the story was exploring that and showing it off to people. Yeah, and, and Bast seems so, he's so clever with the, I mean, like the um, soaking his, the brother's shoes and urine thing was just so devious. <laughs> um, yeah, with the, the kid, the kid says, you know, comes to him and says, I want vengeance. <laughs> he's like, well, okay, how much vengeance? Um, you know, and, and he's like, and the boy like holds up his hands about like a foot apart. And it's like this much vengeance. And, you know, because like I said, Bast is this amoral creature. And if the kid had come to him and said like, you know, how do I kill him and hide the body? Bast would be like, well, here's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> but he's learned over the years, kind of some survival skills among these humans that, you know, vengeance does not necessarily mean, you know, driving a nail through someone's leg and leaving them hanging in a tree. Um, so he's kind of become like this, this counselor to the town's children um, in secret. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that, that's, that's more than anything else. I like writing clever characters. Um, and yeah, so the vengeance he deals out, even if it's not catastrophic or epic, it's clever vengeance. Um, the lies that he coaches the children in are clever lies and the interactions he has with the children are clever interactions. That's, that's what makes the stories worthwhile in my opinion, not so much the action, but the cleverness of the stories. Mm. I mean, were, as a child, were you clever like that in terms of <laughs> uh, getting out of trouble and uh, meeting out vengeance and stuff like that? <laughs> you know, the truth is I was a very good boy. Um, you know, I, I, I was not terribly rebellious. I, I was not terribly wild. Uh, I like to stay at home and I like to read books. Uh, at one point, I got a neighbor once. I lived out in the country. And, you know, the only neighbor within you know, any sort of walking distance was my grandpa who lived up the hill. And then he moved out of that house and some other people moved in. And there was a kid who was exactly my age. And he kept coming to my house. He would come to my house and he would knock on the door and he'd say, do you want to do something? Because he came from a suburb where there were a ton of kids and they were always playing and doing things together. And he'd, come, he'd knock on my door and I'd look at him like, what the hell are you doing here? Because I'd never had anyone of my own age to play with. And he's like, let's do something. And I'm like, I'm thinking I am doing something. I'm reading a book and you are interrupting me. Like, go away. Um, <laughs> so, um, in some ways, I was an ideal child. Uh, you know, you can't get into much trouble just sitting at home and reading books and playing D&D with your friends. Um, now, on the plus side, you know, if you're going to be clever, a good way to bone up on that is reading the right sort of books and playing D&D. &D. teaches you how to be a problem solver. It gives you the joy of experience without the burden of acquiring that experience. Well, yeah, I mean, speaking of D&D, &D, uh, listener Robert Coleman says, ask him about D&D &D in general and the Acquisitions Incorporated games in particular. I love his books. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what do you, you want to tell us about the Acquisitions Incorporated games? Uh, the guys from Penny Arcade. Um, gosh, it was almost two years ago at this point. They, uh, they play D&D &D on stage at their convention, uh, which sounds really weird. 
unless you're an old D&D player. Do you play D&D? I played a lot when I was in high school, yeah. Yeah, I played a ton starting back in high school and then in college. And these days, I don't role play so much anymore because I've, I've lost my crew. Um, but, you know, I have a real love for the game. And so they invited me out to play and we do it on camera. And well, first we taped some podcasts, you know, of us just goofing off around the table. And then we perform on stage at PAX Prime, their convention, and they pack an auditorium. Um, you know, easily 2,000 people, in, like live, sitting in a stadium watching us play D&D with the excellent um, GM, Chris Perkins, who like works at, at TSR and Wizards of the Coast working on Dungeons and Dragons. Um, it's honestly, it's, it's one of the most enjoyable times I've had in the last couple of years. I've had a good couple of years. I've met with very good success. I've met wonderful people, but playing D and D with, uh, with Mike and Jerry and Scott, um, and most recently with Morgan Webb, um, it's, it's a ton of fun and it's, it's all because of Chris. He's an amazing GM. I don't know if you know the Harmontown um, podcast, but he, they do a live show where they also play Dungeons and Dragons on stage. I just wonder how how large is the audience for that? How big could could this be? Like the next NFL or something? Uh, if it just keeps growing and growing. <laughs> you know, and the, the thing is, you know, people who don't people who don't understand role playing or don't understand D anD D, because I told I told my dad, you know, or I, I think I, it might have been I told my publisher, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go play D anD D with the Penny Arcade guys, and she's like you know, you should probably stay at home and work on your book. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I'm going to go play D&D on stage in front of like 2,000 people and like another 20,000 are going to watch it live streaming. And then like another couple hundred thousand are going to watch it online uh, after the fact. And she was just like, and she, she was just flabbergasted by that. And it, it is in, in the same way that those of us that aren't into sports just can't understand why anyone would go to a football game. But it's a little more understandable if you say, instead of role-playing or D&D, you say, I'm going to watch a group of incredibly quick-witted, articulate, funny people engage in interactive improvisational storytelling for two hours. And then suddenly you realize that what it really is is it whose line is it anyway with a strong narrative thread? Um, and then if you explain it to somebody like that, they're like, oh, of course, I would love to. I would love to watch something like that. And as a bonus, we get dragons and sword fights too. Yeah, I mean, sometimes if people ask me why I like fantasy and science fiction, I'll describe it as it's like the imagination Olympics. It's like, you know, the imagination high <laughs> jump. Um, and so it's in, you're sort of saying the same thing kind of there, right? You're, you're watching people with the best imaginations push themselves to their limits live on stage. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, but most importantly, like these guys are funny. You know, I remember when they invited me, I'm like, ah, oh, sure, I'll come goof around with you. And then I'm like, I should watch, I should listen to all the previous podcasts and watch the previous games so that I know what I'm getting into. And you know, at first it was, you know, just the core group uh, from Penny Arcade and, and PVP. 
And they're funny and they're quick. And Chris was in it from the beginning running these games for them. And, um, and I remember listening to them and thinking, these guys are really funny. You know, it's like, I don't know, like as an author, I'm pretty quick witted and I'm a good performer and I'm pretty funny, but that's as an author, like these people are professionally funny. They're funny every day, you know, as a living. And I had some anxiety about like being able to hold my own with them. And then Will Wheaton joined the party. (laughs) And, you know, he is also, you know, he's a professional actor. He, and professionally funny. And so he like really raised the bar in terms of the overall, you know, interactions in the group. And I was, I was legitimately sweaty going into that group. I'm like, can I, can I perform at this level? And then I just, I I just kind of forgot all my anxiety when I was doing it. I just had fun and I was all hopped up on caffeine and we were eating Doritos and, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is awesome. This is everything that I love about the game. Well, I mean, you mentioned that the Dungeon Master is really good. I mean, what would you say um, categorizes a, a really elite Dungeon Master at that sort of a level? You know, I, I touched on it very briefly before. You asked me, you know, if I planned my books ahead of time or, or how I got ready to write a story. And I said that I did it very organically. But then I, I kind of backpedaled and I said, well, I'm not saying I don't have a plan. I'm just very willing to deviate from the plan if it seems like there's a better path. And actually, that is the true sign of mastery of a certain type of DM, my favorite type of DM. You can tell that I'm older because I say, I say DM, uh, Dungeon Master, instead of GM, Game Master, right. um, where Chris has this whole game laid out. You know, he's got a bunch of things prepared and he's got figurines waiting in the wings and he's got a map and he's got riddles and he's got puzzles and NPCs. (laughs) But I do not doubt for a second because I actually know because like we ran through this adventure. I'm like, this was brilliant. And I go, what with this? You know, how did you come up with that when you were planning? And he's like, actually, I did not have anything ready for that room. <laughs> and so I made that all up on the spot. <laughs> and, I, and it cracked me up. I'm like, I'm like, that's awesome. But, you know, a, a lesser GM, you know, if you say, you know, oh, we'll go into this room, he would have panicked and he would have gone, uh, uh, the door's uh, locked. The door's locked. Yeah. He's, uh, <laughs> There's a dragon there, and it scares you away. It's like, well, we're not scared. We'll fight the dragon. Uh, It's just two dragons, ten dragons. (laughs) uh, The force field, you know. Whereas he's, you know, I don't doubt for a second that if instead of pursuing the main line of the plot, you know, we had said, you know what would be great? Like, let's go hunting bandits in the forest. Let's get a cart, and we'll mount a ballista on it. And we're going to go hunt bandits. <laughs> you know, he probably would have ridden along with us on that, on that trip just and goofed around and had fun. Now, the other thing is we are also experienced players. And we know that he has some stuff planned. And we know that the game will be better if we allow ourselves to be gently led through this story. And that doesn't mean we have to do everything he expects. 
but it's it's very cooperative. The best games are cooperative. It's not, you know, GM versus players. It's like we are a team. We're all trying to tell a really good story. Um, but but really, the GM is the linchpin, and Chris has that unique skill set where he has a plan, but he has a willingness to deviate from that plan, and he has that skill in spades. I know you talked about, you did a podcast for a while called Storyboard, and one of your episodes, you talked about stories and games. Um, I mean, I was, you know, I played a lot of RPG, computer RPGs growing up, and I sort of fell out of it. Ultima 7 was my favorite one. I sort of fell, af- fell out of it after that, because I felt like the stories had kind of disappeared from the games. Um, and I gather maybe they're starting to come back now, but what is your opinion just sort of on the current situation with stories in computer role-playing games? Oh, oh, oh boy. I could, do, you, do you have, do you have another hour and a half? We could talk, <laughs> we could talk about that. Um, in some ways I get to be a legitimate curmudgeon where it's like, because I was playing computer games at the very honest-to-God beginnings of computer games. You know, I mean, literally, I have been here since the beginning. I have played those earliest games, like the Infocom text adventures um, on a computer growing up where all you had was text, they would describe a room, and you would type in, get lamp, turn on lamp, you know, go north, look at file, uh, climb rope. And that's how you played this game. Now, and they called those games, they called it interactive fiction. And it was absolutely interactive fiction. You read the text and you took actions and your actions influenced the games. And one of these games, Zork 3, I played with my friend, Chad, in like the sixth grade we played this, we started in sixth grade. We played it for two years before we solved it. Um, trying to solve these puzzles. There were riddles in the game that we could not solve. There were things that we couldn't beat. Um, you know, puzzles that we couldn't figure out. Um, you know, and we would go home and we'd work on it and we would try all of these different things and we'd come to school and talk about it. It was pre-internet. It was vastly pre-internet. We had no answers and no ways to get them. Like, playing that game changed my life. Playing those games taught me to be a problem solver. They taught me how to deal with frustration. They taught me how to stick to something, even when, like, you could just howl with frustration. And so now here comes the curmudgeon part. I lament that my child will never have the opportunity to experience frustration on that level because these days, if you start to get a little bit like irritated at a game or you can't find the exit to this level, you know, you can't find an answer to a riddle, can't do whatever. What do you do? You go on the internet, 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 and it's there. It's not even hard to find it there. I mean, you just go, you go, you click, you find, oh, okay, that's where it is. And, and, and that sucks. That sucks because, you know, that training in frustration and repetition and striving, 
I guarantee if you look at people of my age and generation, and actually you don't even need to, I have done it for you. Let me tell you what I've found. When I talk to the brilliant people in my generation, people doing things, telling stories, making things, they played Infocom games. Neil Gaiman played Infocom games. Terry Pratchett played Infocom games. Felicia Day played Infocom games. You know, and they were all frustrated. And they all like spent months trying to get the frickin' babblefish, you know, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, and now, now it's virtually impossible to write a game which successfully provides challenge and frustration. And that's a shame. That's a shame. We are going to lose something. That makes scientists. That makes doers. That makes like hard-minded, witty, clever people. And I, I worry about those, that those people aren't being made these days. Um, yeah. <laughs> End of rant. <laughs> well, and I mean, I know you're involved with the, the Torment, the new Torment game. Um, to what extent do you think that's going to be able to recapture some of the admirable qualities of older games? Well, um, the, the lack of, of challenge and puzzle and legitimate frustration and striving, that's one issue. The other one that I lament uh, the loss of is the lack of narrative, you know, like good, solid story in most, you know, big release games. Now, I'm not saying none, okay, because that simply isn't true. Portal, you know, I mean, if you if you haven't played Portal, then it's your own damn fault. And but if you have played it, you know that it's brilliant, not just because of the gameplay, but what made that game is the narrative line. Brilliant, brilliant narrative line. Same for the second Portal game. Um, Half Life has good solid narrative. Um, oh, the uh, uh, Bioshock games, solid stuff. Um, the original Deus Ex, I'm dating myself there, hmm. but that had good, good story, thoughtful stuff. Like, you know, I mean, future dystopia and at the end of it, you know, it's like, who are you supporting? Like the secret masters who rule the world and, and are trying to make things better for people by controlling them? Or do we go for enlightened anarchy? That's like a big question. And it was very legitimately brought up and discussed through the course of this game that also had amazing gameplay in it. Um, Torment is absolutely going to have a focus on the story. And I know this because I've been involved in the meetings and the people involved are really taking it seriously. They want a good game with good story and they want the player to be able to make legitimate choices that legitimately influence the story, um, which is something you can only get in video games. And so it's a wasted opportunity if you don't have it. Um, and I have very high hopes. They're, they're smart people. They're pros in the industry. You know, I honestly, I am the, the least qualified person there because everybody else has been all over making games for years the only thing I can really bring is the fact that I get stories. I get character. That's, 
you know, that's that's my wheelhouse. Right. I mean, could you say a little bit more about your what your role is on the project or what you've contributed? I'm specifically I'm creating one area and I'm creating a companion character. Um, and so I, I went in and I was chatting with them and and everybody went around the room and everyone talked about the character they were they were thinking of and that they were they wanted to make. And it came to me like and honestly I'm intimidated because these are pros. Um the head of story, you know, worked on the original Planescape, you know? Uh both the, the, the game yeah and and um yeah and the the D and D setting. And uh, and people are there from Black Isle and Obsidian and all these amazing studios. And there's me, you know, it's like, I like to play video games. I played Zork when I was in the sixth grade. And so I sit down and I say, here's my thought. You know, if we if we want to give people true freedom of choice, and we know that some of them want to be a hero, we need to give them certain opportunities. And I go, this is a weird idea for a character but hear me out. And if you don't want to do it, I'll completely understand, but hear me out. And I just talked for 15 minutes about my idea for this character, which playing as many games as I have, I have never run into a character like this in any of these games, any of these role-playing games. And I pitched it to them thinking they're going to just think that I'm an idiot. Um, or they're going to say, well, that's an interesting idea, but I just don't think it'll work, which is the polite way of saying that you're an idiot. Um, and so I talked and I talked. And then finally I saw Chris Avalone, who's just like a superstar and, and so good. He's over there and I see him kind of like nodding along a little bit. And I'm like, okay, if I've got Chris, then at least I'm not a moron. And I finished my pitch and they said, absolutely, we can do that. Now I'm not telling. I'm obviously being vague here because I don't want to spoil the reveal of this character. But um, you know, just yesterday I was working on concept art um, and shipping it off to the team. Uh, I've already worked out her personality, and I'll be doing a uh, a comic with my illustrator, uh, with my my friend and illustrator Nate Taylor, to kind of introduce the character and part of the the Numenera world. Um, in conjunction with the release of the video game. Yeah, well, so I'm, now I'm really curious about that character, but I guess we'll, we'll, wait, we'll wait and see. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I can say. I can say this. You, you will. You know, you've you've probably never had a character like this as a companion in one of these role playing games before. Um. Well, getting back to sort of your commentary on games, actually, uh, one of our listeners, JSL Adkins, wants to know if Storyboard is coming back. Um, I guess, could you just say a little bit about why you did the Storyboard podcast and what your, whether you have any future plans for it? Well, um, Felicia Day was just kicking off the Geek and Sundry network, and she invited me in for her launch of it. They did, I think it was like, gosh, was it? like 24 hours straight Google Hangout to announce the launch of Geek and Sundry. And so I can't even remember. I think either I heard about it and I dropped her an email 
or she was putting it together and she dropped me an email and said, Hey, do you want to help me fill an hour of this time for our launch? And I'm like, Oh, sure. I go, I could bring together a few writers and we could all talk about writing. And so I did, you know, and we all got together and we all talked about writing and it was a ton of fun. And then I said to Felicia afterwards, I go, that was a blast. You know, I don't know what you're looking for, for shows for Geek and Sundry, but I would put together, you know, a monthly show, me and authors talking about writing stuff. And she said, sure. And then we did it. And I did it for about a year and finally kind of hit my stride towards the end of it. But then they had a, a programming shift. They were doing less of the live hangout shows. And so they moved in a different direction which was fine because I was really busy working on various projects. Uh, but the main reason I did it is because, you know, I go to these conventions and I'll sit on a panel and we'll talk about how to write good characters, what makes epic fantasy epic, how to develop a magic system, you know, how to portray women, you know, less awfully in fantasy, hmm. which is a huge deal. Um, you know, how can we be, you know, more sex positive in our books without just being, you know, kind of gauche and smutty? Um, what makes urban fantasy so appealing? How can you write a better vampire? You know, things like that. We do these panels at conventions and I love talking about these things and people love attending these panels, but not everybody lives next to a convention. And even the people that do live next to a convention might not know about it, or maybe they hate crowds, or maybe they don't have 50 bucks to blow on a badge, you know, or, you know, 200 bucks for a plane ticket and then for a hotel room so they can, you know, go to San Diego and, and come hang out. So I'm like, why don't we start doing these panels online and then everyone can see them, you know, and we can talk about these things to everyone and everyone can have a good time and, it's very, it's, it's much more egalitarian. I kind of like that. So that's what we did. Uh, I had a great time and I finally was starting to figure out what made it work well when I got to the end of that first season. My intention is to start it back up again, but it, it probably won't be live. I think we'll pre-record it the next time around. And... um but you know, I've got so many projects, I'm really hesitant to pick up another one. It'll probably happen, and it, it might happen as early as next year. Maybe I'll make that a stretch goal in World Builders if we hit, um, you know, maybe if we hit a certain amount of money in our fundraiser, I'll bring Storyboard back. So when you said you were starting to figure out what made it work well, what what was it that you were figuring out that was making it work well? Well, some people, some people are really smart about these topics. Some people are really funny. Some people are really witty in the moment. Some people are good teachers. But not everyone is all of those things. And so if you have five people who are all knowledgeable but very slow to speak, it's not a good discussion. Um, if you have five people that are very witty but then none of them are knowledgeable, <laughs> That's not, that's not a good discussion either. It's, it's, it's empty. Um, and it's, everyone quickly realizes that it's just kind of pointless. So, you know, 
And some people who are very good speaking in person or on a panel are not good on a webcam. And so, you know, the more of it that I did, the more of it I realized that, you know, like what makes for a really good mix of authors um, and what makes for a good discussion and what makes for a good topic, um, you know, and, and so there's, there's a lot of things. It's, it's, it's more like alchemy than chemistry. It's, it's not like you can put five ingredients together the same way all the time. And you're always going to get a good discussion. It's, uh, it's more of an art than a science. Yeah. I mean, and that's, we, you know, we do panels on this show and I, I totally agree with all the stuff you're saying. Um, actually speaking of audio, I saw that you were personally performing the audio book for, um, the, the slow regard of silent things. Um, could you talk about, talk about that experience and just how do you read all that stuff without, uh, screwing <laughs> up, you know, uh, blundering at all? Well, you do blunder is the key. Uh, you blunder a lot and then they clean it up in the edit. Um, or at least I do. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly no stranger to public speaking. You know, I've preached sermons and sung in choirs and I've been a teacher for years and I played D&D on stage and <laughs> uh, done Q&A and been on TV. And that's not a problem for me. I, I like talking about these things and I'm, I'm quick on my feet. But reading this audiobook has given me a whole new appreciation for the people who do this professionally. There's an incredible amount of craft involved. And uh, I'm okay. I might, I, I, I could even say that probably I'm good. At this point in my career, I am good. I'm not great. Um, the one thing, you know, I, I never would have dipped into it for this book, except that I know this character, I know this, world, I know this story, and there were things going on in the language, hidden things about the sound and the meter and how things are presented that I knew that I was aware of that no other audiobook narrator would have been. Um, and so that's the only reason I felt like I could take a crack at it. I can bring that into the story, even though I do not have the craft of a professional narrator. Um, I hope to improve. I hope to someday be Neil Gaiman good, but I'm certainly not there right now. But you, so you are planning to do more uh, audiobook narration? You know, I, I, I did enjoy it. Um, and I would, I'd like to be better at it. And I, and I know the only way to do that is to practice and to get in there and do it. Um, so yeah, I will absolutely do more. I'm not going to do book three because that already has a narrator and I don't want to change horses mid-race. You get used to one voice doing these stories and then somebody changes the audio narrator on you and that's just, that's unforgivable. So, uh, but yeah, I would absolutely do more of these things in the future. I'd have a blast with that. I mean, did you learn anything about doing it in the course of this one book that you wish you could go back and tell yourself at the, when you started out? Um, I would probably, I'd probably tell myself to read it one more time to myself out loud the day before my performance, you know, um, or like the, the couple of days leading up to my actual recording. Um, 
because, you know, I, I had, I revised it and revised it and I'd read through it once all the way and made edits and corrections to make sure that I would be able to read it smoothly. But, um, but then like a couple of weeks had gone past. So I, I felt confident in it, but then I sat down to read it again and I'd gotten a little rusty. So I, I wish I would have done that again. The problem is, is just reading it out loud, even this relatively short book, you know, even if I never stop and repeat anything, which you kind of need to do to get it right, it's got to be, you know, it's eight hours of just sitting and reading. It's very time intensive and it's exhausting. I mean, I learned that in the booth. It is exhausting <laughs> to do this. It doesn't seem like it would be, but you've got to kind of emote. You've got to really control your breathing. You've got to really control your voice. Um, you feel like a wrung out rag after five hours. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I had there's one other uh, listener question I wanted to get to. So, uh, Nick L. Plated uh, asks, "Is it weird that I have a quote from your book getting tattooed on me?" <laughs> I would say weird, but awesome. <laughs> um, and I, I'd also say that you're not alone. Um, some people have sent me pictures of their tattoos. Uh, either of art or quotes, and uh, so so you're not alone in that. Uh, I actually have, I think maybe another ten or so that I've been meaning to post up in a blog for a while, but I just haven't managed to get around to it. Yeah. So he says the quote that he picked is, "All the truth in the world is held in stories." Ah, yeah, that's a that's a very popular one. Not for tattoos, I'm saying, but like, yeah, people have commented <laughs> on that uh, on that quote before. Um, as far as tattoos, I think I was actually just showing somebody the other day. Um, right, I know that there's at least two people that have uh, my heart is made of stronger stuff than glass tattooed hmm. uh, on them. Uh, so that seems to be a popular one too. I also saw, I was struck on your blog. You had the photo photograph of the women with the uh, wise man's fear bikinis. Yeah, yeah. We ran a photo contest a couple of years ago, and the response to it was so huge, like just legitimately huge. Like thousands of pictures were sent in, and then my life got busy, and I got a kid, and then my dad was sick, and you know I, I've been struggling to like sift these photos and announce the winners and organize them into blogs. So it's been literally years. It's, it's been a huge source of guilt for me. Uh, but I'm finally getting them all up now. And uh, that was the arts and crafts blog where people, um, yeah, they, they actually silk screened my book covers on the cloth and then made bikinis out of them. Somebody sewed a mural, um, People made jigsaw puzzles out of the map. You know, it was just people got really creative um, and they took literally thousands of amazing pictures that I'm only that I'm slowly releasing onto my blog to show them off. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, just speaking of, of those feelings of guilt, I mean, I've, I've seen you talk about, you know, how you have just too many people showing up at your events now to sign their books and you have a stack of... 200 letters or something on your table that you haven't even had time to read. I mean, it just seems, yeah, just, just completely overwhelming. You know, it, what it comes down to is 
you know, they, they say you can boil a toad if you warm up the water slowly enough. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, it turns out that's not true. They actually did that experiment, but... Oh, did I, they? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, the toads I, are smarter than, than you give them credit for, but no, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you can't, although I'm horrified to hear that they did it as an experiment. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, the, the truth is, it, it certainly works with people, because apparently we're less smart than, than toads. <laughs> um, you know, it used to be, I mean, I have pictures of me at my very first signings, where it's like me sitting at a card table, like grinning desperately for three hours while everyone avoids eye contact. <laughs> and then, you know, a couple of years go by and, you know, 20, 30 people show up and that's awesome. And then, you know, a year goes by and then like a hundred people show up and, and I posed for pictures and I will write quotes in books and I make funny jokes and we hang out and we chat because you can do that with 80 people. It will take a couple of hours and then you go home and then a year goes by and like, you know, 250 or 300 people show up and you still hang out, you chat, you take pictures, you put quotes in the books and okay. And then you get back to your hotel, maybe at at one o'clock at night, but you know, that was a good night. You made a lot of people happy and then you have 600 people show up. And so you only do short quotes and, you know, not so many pictures and you kind of hurry people along and, you know, and it goes on and on and on like that. But I went to Madrid and 2000 people showed up to my book signing. And once things hit that scale, you start thinking, I mean, I, I remember sitting there and, and that was like 12 solid hours of me signing. Um, and and we couldn't do pictures and everyone could only have one book. And I felt bad about that because these people have been standing in line for hours and I'm only saying one book and no pictures. But the truth is I didn't get out of there until five in the morning. And I started, you know, before five in the afternoon, I showed up early just to, to help move things along. And you start thinking maybe instead of writing to Marta, I could just write Marta. And it seems like a silly thing, but if you write the word two, 2,000 times, it takes like 15, 20, 30 minutes. And so like, those are the sort of things that are happening in my life right now where I'm thinking, you know, how can I still make people happy, still feel good about myself and not just like burn my entire life away with things that worked really well when I had 50 readers. Um, and it's, it's actually a huge source of, of, of conflict for me because, you know, if, if I'm walking through the airport and somebody says, Hey, are you Patrick Rothfuss? And I go, yeah. And they go, can I take a picture? And that's flattering. It's, it's, it's kind of an expression of love. But the truth is, it's like, if I don't hustle my ass, I'm going to miss my plane. And I say, Oh, I'm so sorry. I've got it. I'm, I'm in a rush. And they look like I've kicked their dog. I'm like, I'm sorry, but, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. I just can't do everything for everyone all the time. Um, and because I'm from the Midwest and I'm a little predisposed towards being a nurturer and being a helper and giving people what they ask for, and we're predisposed to guilt too. So, yeah, yeah, I struggle with that lately. It's been a big part of these last couple of years. 
Well, and see, now I'm starting to feel guilty that I'm taking up so much of your time when you could be answering your fan mail and stuff like that. No, no, no. And see, actually, here's what I'm coming to realize, and it's one of the reasons that I'm bringing Storyboard back, is that, you know, if I go to a con, I can spend all weekend there, and I get a hotel, and I buy a plane ticket, and it eats up my weekend, you know, and I meet fans, and I shake hands, and sign books, and I'm on a panel. You know, but like if I'm lucky, I get to interact with maybe 2,000 fans. And that's a lot. That would be a big con and some big rooms and good paneling and a lot of autographing and kind of exhausting. But you know, that's worth it. I like, I like doing that. I, I find it very energizing and I like hanging out with my, my readers. But if I do an episode of Storyboard, you know, anyone who wants to can like hang out with me for an hour. You know, and hear me talk and hear me opine about storytelling or video games or urban fantasy or whatever we want to talk about. And so what I'm, what I'm searching for is more efficient ways to make people happy. Um, because, and, and the deal breaker for me is the fact that I have two kids now. Um, and, you know... For a while now, you know, I go to too many conventions, and so my boy misses me. And the, the youngest one is too young to miss me, but, you know, I miss him, and I'm missing a chunk of his childhood because I'm obsessing about making myself available to people. Um, yeah, it, as you can tell, it, it's something that, that I've been putting a lot of thought into lately. And uh, But something like this is actually wonderful because... You know, we can do this. It might eat up a couple hours of my day, but I love talking about these things. And then when it comes out, everybody gets to listen to it. And you don't have to pay 20 bucks to get into a con. You don't have to subscribe to something. You don't have to do whatever. You don't even have to sit in front of your computer anymore. You can listen to it on your headphones, off your phone. Um, and, and that's efficient. You know, 100,000 people could listen to this if they wanted. Um, I wish they did. Yeah. Right. Well, and in a lot of ways that's smarter for me than going to another convention. Um, it saves me time. Um, all right, cool. I do think we should probably start wrapping this up though. I just have two more listener questions I wanted to hit. So Dave okay. Rhodes asks, are you a wizard? <laughs> uh, I would say yes for certain, uh, definitions of the word wizard. Uh, and which definitions are those? Well, that would be telling. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then William Olijars says, perhaps predictably, when is book three coming out? Uh, believe me, if we had a date, I would share the date. <laughs> but there is no date. You know, trust me. You know, if I knew, I would tell you. Are there any other short stories or any other kind of projects uh, on the radar that you want to mention? Uh, right now, the, the big one is going to be uh, when Torment eventually comes out, but I don't know when that will be. Uh, but no, right now, I'm mostly you know, going to be getting slow regard out there, and then I'm going to be focusing on the big project, book three. Um, and do you want to say anything about World Builders? You mentioned that earlier. Uh, World Builders is a charity that I kind of started by accident. 
we kind of rally the geek community and raise money for Heifer International that has been doing good work in the world, educating and promoting sustainable agriculture, feeding hungry kids and making people's lives better for over 60 years now. I've been running it for the last six years and with the help of a team of like-minded geeks and a bunch of donors, we've raised over $3 million in the last six years. If you are interested, we do auctions, we give away books, we give away a lot of books, a lot of gorgeous first edition books, signed books, out of print books, uh, probably like $80,000 worth of books we give away every year, donated by publishers and authors. Uh, we auction off read and critiques, you know, so if you want a professional to read your manuscript and then give you feedback on it, we auction those off from authors and editors and agents. If you're interested, we'll be doing our big yearly fundraiser starting on November 10th, and you can swing by our website and see all the festivities. It's just worldbuilders.org. Or if you swing by my blog uh, for the month of the fundraiser, you will see a lot of posts there, a lot of pictures of books, a lot of cool things. All right, sounds great. So, yeah, so I think we should start wrapping this up there. So we've been speaking with Patrick Rothfuss, and his new book is called The Slow Regard of Silent Things. So, Pat, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks again to Patrick Rothfuss for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including NESFB, who writes, Hello, my name is Zaphod, and I am a ggg It all started when I was working nights and wanted something fun to listen to, and I found some GGG, and I tried it, and I was like, this is awesome. I probably had too much GGG that first night, like four episodes, but I didn't feel sick or anything. Anyways, I've been hooked ever since, but I can kick it any time I want, I swear. So big thanks to NESFB for that great review. And of course, a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including crowdfunder number six, Jonathan Geloni, who just became the latest listener to be making monthly contributions to the show. This episode was also made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Nick Suffolk, Jason Lind, Laura Dirks, George Turcott, Joanna Evans, Vlad Levin, and Zoe Akim. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.